Now well, we're going to turn this morning to Paul's first letter to Timothy. Paul's first letter to Timothy. If you've been coming for any length of time, you know that uh, we've just concluded uh, studies in Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And uh, you know, as uh, I look back upon those studies, and you can get most of them on uh, on the website if you want to, uh, to go back and uh, read over or uh, listen over those studies. But it doesn't matter how many studies you do, and we've did uh, 30, 40 studies there in the, on the Galatian epistle. It doesn't matter how many studies, you always feel a sense of inadequacy when you come to the Word of God because it doesn't matter how many times you look into this incredible book you just know that there's more so much more and you know that in a sense you're just uh, just scratching the surface and any of you who are preachers you will I hope appreciate that as I do that uh, you know when we come to the word of God we are coming to the awesome book and uh, God's word is just deeper than we can ever delve into doesn't matter how many studies. I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent uh, 13 years on the book of Romans. He didn't preach that every week. There were gaps, but 13 years. And I don't think he quite concluded the last bit. So such is the depth of God's word. But we come, uh, we come humbly uh, this morning to a new book, to a new letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And again this morning we can just begin to get an overview of this wonderful letter. First Timothy chapter 1, I want to read some verses. Um, <clears throat> as far as verse 11, from verse 1 to verse 11. Uh, here, Paul writing to young pastor Timothy. We read from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Uh, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine 
that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And God will bless the reading from his precious word this morning. Last weekend I wasn't here. You may have missed me, you may not, but I wasn't here last weekend because I went to uh, the gathering. The gathering is an event that uh, came about through the vision of several men, two men in particular, who believed that there was a need for men to get together and to understand what it is to be a Christian man. Uh, They saw men uh, around them who were confused, men who were disenchanted with church life, men who felt that there was no role for true men, real men, within church. And so they had this vision a number of years ago and this event was put on and it's grown a great deal since those early days. And uh, it was a great time, a great time of, uh, of worship, a great time of evangelism where people would bring uh, men, colleagues from works, uh, relatives who were not in church, who didn't go to church, they brought them along to the event, they got the chance to listen to the gospel without a normal church environment, coming into a church listening to a, a sermon. And uh, I, I know that God was doing a great work among some of those men during that time. And even those who were churched and were coming to church, they began to understand more of what it was to be a, a Christian man within church, uh, discover, understand, reclaim their roles and ministries within the church. As Paul writes here to young pastor Timothy, he has in mind some of these say, this same thinking. Timothy is a godly man. He's well grounded in scripture and he's the pastor of a challenging church in the culturally diverse city of Ephesus. He is somewhat timid and he's in danger of being intimidated by the cultural norms that existed in Ephesus. Paul's message here is both encouraging and challenging to this young man, the pastor of Ephesus. He's saying in the kindest way possible, man up, Timothy. Man up. Don't be browbeaten. Don't be intimidated by those who would dictate the course of the church. Take responsibility, Timothy. Manage your church as a man of God. Manage your home as a man of God. Manage your family as a man of God and show what it is to be a Christian man in your environment. Now that's quite a theme, isn't it, in our world today as we look around us and we look at churches today. There's a lot of confusion about what it is to be a man in church today, what the roles of men are in churches today. And yet Paul cuts right to the chase as he goes through this epistle as to what it really means to be a man of God in a church today. First and second Timothy, together with Titus, form what we describe as the pastoral epistles. 
And they're the only letters apart from Philemon written to individuals rather than to churches. They address two dear sons in the faith, as Paul puts it, special envoys who pastor churches at Ephesus, as far as Timothy was concerned, and Crete, as far as Titus was concerned. When you look at Paul's letter to Titus, you find that Titus is a steelier character than Timothy. Timothy's the gentler one. He's the one who's a bit more nervous. Titus is the steelier character of the two. Now the pastoral epistles are, are sent with a, with a different purpose from, uh, from the other letters that Paul writes. They, they show another side of Paul, if you like. They reveal his personal relationships with friends and colleagues because these are friends and colleagues. Timothy is a, a friend, a colleague, so is Titus. And he writes to them as friends and colleagues to encourage them in their pastoral ministry. And they're the last letters written, and they alone, these letters, these pastoral epistles alone inform us of Paul's later life and later ministry between his first and his second imprisonment. These letters contain a wealth of instruction on practical matters, issues such as public worship, qualification of leaders, the pastor's life and ministry, how to confront sin in the church, the role of women within church, the care of widows, how to manage money within the church, important doctrines, and there are important doctrines here, although not as uh, uh, as deep as uh, in some of the other letters, uh, doctrines about uh, about scripture, about salvation, and about the Saviour Himself, uh, are, they're all included here in these pastoral epistles. Paul's stated purpose in writing to Timothy is summed up, I think, in the first epistle in chapter 3 verse 15 where he says that you will know Timothy how people ought to conduct themselves and I'm interested in how Paul and how the Bible tells us to conduct ourselves in church we hear a lot about oh this is how you should conduct your church this is how you build your church and we've been doing that for a very long time I remember when I went to Bible college it was the the same they had uh, there were certain books that were supposed to be standard to your college course about uh, about church growth I remember a a, a book that was uh, on the list, a book by Eddie Gibb. Now, I can't even remember whether that was a good book. I can't remember whether I was ever read the actual book. It was on the the church list. But what I do know is that if Eddie Gibb had anything interesting to say about church growth, real church growth, it was found here in these epistles that Paul writes to Timothy and Titus because this is the way that church should be run. This is the way that church should be guided and led and a lot of churches are just going off in other directions today. 
I, I don't need smoke coming up from the back of the pulpit to to to. Uh, it, it, that's not the way that uh, the Bible tells me that churches should be run. I don't need to have a whole huge band of uh, of good-looking individuals. We do have a band of good-looking individuals, but we don't need that sort of thing in order to present the gospel as God wants us to present it. We need to keep to these wonderful teachings we find here. And so this is why this this epistle is so important for us as a church as we grow together here, as we begin to build up again after a time when we went down to quite a small number of people. If we are going to grow the way that God wants us to grow, we grow on the basis of the teachings that are given here so wonderfully and lavishly to us in these letters, in these uh, pastoral uh, epistles. Now Paul's authorship here in the pastoral epistles were never questioned during the days of the early church um, Paul's letters uh, to these pastoral epistles were quoted by Ignatius uh, by Polycarp by Clement of Rome and uh, again in the 3rd century by Oregon, Clement of Alexander, Briar and Tertullian all uh, supporting and accepting and, uh, and witnessing to the fact that Paul had actually written these letters, that they were genuine letters and that uh, they were part of the scripture. In recent times, however, there has been great attacks upon the Bible and attacks upon all of the scriptures and the epistles, these pastoral epistles did not, uh, did not get away from those uh, feminist attacks in trying to make out that they weren't written by the Apostle Paul there's authorship uh, in an attempt to, to spread confusion and I think it's important as we begin this letter that we understand some of those arguments, some of those uh, criticisms some of, in order that we might be fully uh, confident if you like that these were indeed written by the Apostle Paul Heresies in churches are not new, um, and the desire to um, to break up the Bible and to take certain passages out of the Bible and to uh, relegate certain scriptures to a, a lesser a lesser importance. All these things have been taking place down through the ages. Heresies are not new; they just come around again and again and again. Heresies like the spiritualists is not new. Jehovah's Witnesses are not new. Christadelphians not new. None of these scriptures are not new. Religions that tell us that there are other ways to God, they're not new. They're not new. They just come around, come around, come around. Gentiles who tell us that there are, is another way to God other than through the cross of Christ, it's not new. It's a heresy. Jews who tell us that there's another way to Christ other than through the cross. Jews that tell us there's another covenant rather than the covenant that requires you to come and to receive Christ personally as your Saviour and Lord personally and accept Christ personally and come through the blood of Christ in the same way as everybody else comes. Heresies that tell you that you want to avoid them but they're still happening and they come around and they come around and they come around within the church today we need to be very very careful that we don't take on board any of those 
woke teachings that are happening today. Now some people have suggested that the chronological order, if you like, in the pastoral letters cannot be reconciled with the accounts in the book of Acts. Now this might be uh, accepted if you hold that the book of Acts records Paul's final imprisonment and impending death. But in fact, it's very clear that Paul, even there, expected to be released. Paul, writing from his jail at the end of the book of Acts there, in Philippians chapter 1 to the Philippian church, in verse 19 of the first chapter, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And then he goes on to say in verse 25 and 26 of that same letter that's written from that prison cell, I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain, that's the I'm not going to die. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, he expects to be with them again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. So that wasn't the end. The book of Acts was not the end of that. The last chapter was not the end for the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you read chapter 25 of the book of Acts, in verse 14 to 21, it records the valid charges that were brought, or the, the, the charges that were brought about him, were not valid at all before Festus and, and Herod Agrippa. In fact, in, in chapter 26 and verse 32, Agrippa says to Festus, he says this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So even though Paul was going off to, to Caesar because he'd appealed to Caesar, there were no charges that were carried with him. He was going to Caesar simply because he'd, be, he'd appealed to Caesar, but Festus and Agrippa found no charges. And so if the course of justice prevailed and the Roman justice, generally speaking, was good... Paul would have been released and uh, the details found in the pastoral epistles relating to the period between Paul's first and second imprisonment, they are, are, are clearly, they clearly relate to that period. The, the second imprisonment, they, uh, the, the second imprisonment that Paul had, um, that uh, was through Nero's persecution of the church. And that would inevitably result in his execution as by that point under Nero justice and morality and integrity had gone out of the window but there was this period between the first and the second imprisonment and this is the period that uh, Paul is addressing as he speaks to Timothy and uh, to Titus now the second challenge to Paul's uh, the idea of Paul's authorship if you like, relates to his instruction on the heresy of asceticism. Now asceticism was the idea that this world was evil and that you needed to avoid everything in the world because the world was evil. And uh, that was certainly something that the Gnostic teachers took up on board in the second century and they were very hot about, uh, about, uh, about um, uh, avoiding this world 
Uh, in fact, there were two groups. There were one that said, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how you, you enjoy this world because this world is evil, it doesn't matter. And there were, there were certain Gnostics who were very promiscuous, but there were other Gnostics who were very ascetic. That means that they, they lived very frugal lives, they, they, they dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and they, they hardly ate at all, and they, they lived in, in the desert, and, and that, was, uh, that was the asceticism of the Gnosticism. And, 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 and the, the argument is, well, if, if, that was the, if, if that was the asceticism, then, then it was the second century that this letter was written. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't when Paul was writing to, to Timothy. But asceticism didn't begin there. The, the idea of this world being evil, the, the idea of people sort of uh, avoiding life because they thought it was evil, that didn't begin with Gnostics. That was, that was something that was developed with the Gnostics, but it, wasn't, it was already in place. Right from the very beginning in the early church, you had these teachings that were, that were going through the churches. Ephesus, for example, was on a, a trade route. Every, every idea, every, every, every kind of religious idea was there at Ephesus. And so the idea, when Paul addresses the issue of, uh, of, of asceticism, when he, he says to Christians, you know, you're avoiding all this food, it, there's no point, you don't need to avoid all the food, you don't need to live frugal lives, you don't need to make yourself unhappy, you don't need to dress in sackcloth and ashes, you don't need to be, behave that way. And that was what was happening in the Ephesian church. Paul says, you, you don't have to do that. But when he was saying that right from the beginning of the early church, because all of these heresies that you find in the second century, in the third century, and down through the ages, they all began right at the beginning of the early church. You see, we have to understand that Satan was trying to destroy the early church right from the beginning. He knew that if he got a, a foothold, he knew he would be in terrible trouble. You know, you know, there's an example of, of Rommel during the, uh, the, the Second World War. And Rommel, uh, General Rommel was a great a German general. He was given the task of, of uh, protecting the beaches around France and uh, putting up the Atlantic Wall, as it were. And he put up all these defences. And even today you can go and see some of these de defences, all these gun uh, uh, turrets and all these defences and all these uh, mines on, on the beaches and, and, uh, and barbed wire and everything else. Because Rommel, Rommel did that because Rommel knew, Rommel knew that, that if the Allies got a, a foothold on the beaches of Normandy, he said the war will be over. It, it'll be over if they get if they get to establish themselves on the beaches of Normandy. It, it, it'll be over, and we know what happened. And we know that we, we know that the Allies did form a, a, a beachhead on, on, on the day on that first day of Normandy. Uh, but we also know the cost, the terrible cost, the people's lives that were lost, and the, the, the how terrible that was. In order to establish an, a, a, a beachhead, my dad was at Normandy. He was in a gunboat, and his gunboat was so damaged that it was decommissioned. Up, you know, after after the, the Normandy landed, it was, he was so, so damaged. So, wonder he survived. You know that, but there was a terrible cost. You see, and you know, we, we live in a world where the, the enemy is always trying to just get us off the beach, if you like. Get us off the beach, trying to, trying to close the churches down, trying to, to stop us establishing a beachhead and then trying to stop us from maintaining a beachhead. It wasn't just the first day of the D-Day landings. 
It was after that they needed to, to get the supplies and they needed to bring more troops and they needed to, to develop, they needed to push forward. All of those things. And, and Rommel was determined. I, I can't let them do that. And Satan was determined in the early church. I, I can't let these Christians get a beachhead. I can't let these Christians get established. I can't let them begin to, to move forward. And he's saying the same today. Saying the same today. You know, it, it, it takes courage to establish a beachhead in this world. To be a Christian. It takes courage to establish gospel Bible-believing churches in this land today. And it takes courage to maintain them and keep them going. And it requires people of courage and people who are determined that whatever the enemy tries to do, whatever the enemy throws against us, we are not going to give in and we are not going to give ground and we are going to move forward as we need to under by the grace of God. Now another argument, another argument suggests here that uh, this couldn't have been written by this couldn't have been written by Paul because the organisational structure was too well established for first century church. In other words, the the teaching that Paul is giving to Timothy, oh, that couldn't have happened. It's too well established. There's too much structure in Paul's instructions to Timothy. They're probably one of the most ridiculous arguments I've, I've ever heard because Paul came from a a Jewish background and the Jewish churches, the Jewish synagogues they already had established structures, they already knew about structure, they already knew about discipline they already knew about maintaining uh, maintaining their buildings and their and, and, their, and, and, and they were well aware of, of what was needed to establish a synagogue or the equivalent and to maintain it and all the structural issues around that and we read too in Paul's first missionary journey. We read about Galatians, didn't we? But in Paul's first missionary journey, when he travels to Galatia, chapter 14 and verse 23, we find Paul and Barnabas there appointed elders for them in each of the churches and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. In other words, the, first, the very first missionary journey that Paul went on, he established Principles. He established a structure uh, within those churches, even in the churches there in Galatia. Again, if you read Peter's epistle, again in chapter 2, verse 1, we read there, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not lording it over there, those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. So again, we already see there in Peter writing to the churches that they've already got a, a developed structure there. The term presbyteros, which is the Greek for elder, and episkopos, which is uh, the Greek for bishop, they're interchangeable there. There is a, a structure already developing in the very early stages. So they Argument there is not a valid one at all. Ephesians 4.11 is a great example. Paul writing to the Ephesian church 
as a whole says so Christ himself says Paul gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up the structures already there Paul is already explaining something about those structures as he writes to the Ephesian churches so that argument is not a not a good one not a valid one at all others claim there are no great theological themes in these letters compared to the other letters that Paul writes to the churches that's understandable isn't it if you're writing to a friend you don't write in the same way as you write to uh, perhaps a congregation Paul is writing to two pastors who were well established in the faith Timothy, for example, had spent 15 years under Paul's ministry. He knew what the gospel was. He knew all the foundational doctrines. He knew all about the doctrines. He didn't need Paul to come along and tell him again the things that he already knew. What Paul, what uh, Timothy needed was instruction. What he needed was support. What he needed was how to run a church. He knew the Bible. He knew the gospel. He'd been brought up with it. He'd been brought up with it with his... Uh, his mother was a Christian, his grandmother was a Christian, godly, uh, godly women who were part of his life and he was brought up in all those things. He didn't need somebody to come along and tell him again those foundational truths. So again, the, the argument is not, a, not a, a one that holds any water whatever. And then finally, there are some identify a difference in vocabulary in these letters. Someone actually took time to, dis- to uh, identify that a third of the Greek words are not found in Paul's other letters. In other words, he's using a different, la- a different vocabulary. Again, critics uh, fail to take into account the fact that this was, these were personal letters. These were letters who were written to friends. They were li- written on, diff- on different issues. There's no wonder there's a, a change of vocabulary. There's no wonder there's a, there's a change in language because he's talking about different things. And even if you look at language, language that we use in churches today, you find that gradually over time some of that language changes. We don't use some of the language that uh, we used when I was growing up in church. Some of the language would be quite strange today for some people are you are you washed in the blood of the lamb i mean some people would find that quite uh, unusual to actually to, to 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 use that sort of language and there was a lot of kind of that type of language that uh, you know we don't use so much these days and in writing letters in particular you're quite specific about what you're actually saying so again this really isn't any any uh uh any power or, or, or any mileage in, in, in some of those, some of those ideas, mm. and, I, and I think that um, basically the, 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 these objections. Uh, Hendrickson, Hendrickson, in his commentary concluded. He, he said, "Is it possible that the manner in which these three little gems talking about the these epistles, these epistles to the pastors, uh, deal with some of the fondly held beliefs?" of the modern mind that it has something to do with the decisive way in which Pauline authority is denied in other words he's saying here that uh, is it any wonder 
that these three epistles that deal so specifically with issues that are so important and so so conflicting for some people in the churches today, is it any wonder that people don't want them? Is it any wonder that we don't hear a lot of preaching on 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus? Is it any wonder that we don't hear this type of preaching within some of the churches today? And is it not, as Hendrickson says, because they are inflammatory, because they actually take people to task and it brings people back to where they should be? It challenges and it condemns the critics. Now people might ask, why read, why study these letters written so long ago to an individual in a different culture? Why would we bother to read them and to look into them? Well, Paul reminds us to Timothy, doesn't he, in that second epistle in verse, chapter 3, verse 16, he says to Timothy, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And it saddens me and it causes me bewilderment when I see people who claim to be godly men who are actually saying, well, that scripture doesn't matter. That Paul's teaching on this doesn't matter. We're in a culturally different environment now. We're in a culturally different world now. We don't, we don't, need, we don't need this anymore. What a dangerous thing to say. You know, that somehow we are allowed to pick and choose. It's rather like going back to Genesis as well. I don't need to believe in Genesis anymore. You know, I mean, my biology teacher, my science teacher tells me that, you know, evolution's the way. I don't need to believe in Genesis. If you don't believe in Genesis, where do you begin? Where do you begin? If you say you believe the Bible, but I don't believe in Genesis, where do you begin? If you come to First Timothy and say, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe this in, in Timothy, where do, you, where, do you, where do you draw your line? We don't draw a line in this church. We believe all the Bible. We believe all scriptures inspired by God. We honour God and we honour the scriptures and we obey the scriptures. We must be clear. We must be clear. All scripture is important. All scripture is relevant and timeless. We have no right... And we have no license to pick and choose what we accept or adhere to in our churches today. There are parts that are easy. There are parts that are difficult. There are parts that are popular. There are parts that are unpopular and hated. Parts we like and parts we do not like. But there is no room to sit on the fence when it comes to Bible authority. May God bless his word this morning and may as we move into this epistle, may we do so humbly, may we do so carefully and may we do so respectfully and in obedience. May God bless his word to our hearts. Amen.